0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Well, hi folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher even if they don't, today is March the thirty-first, twenty twenty-two, and this is episode three thousand. 65 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday. That means it's time for our Expert Council Q&A show. Got a lot of great stuff for you, but I got to say something first, and some of you won't be surprised when you hear the words, tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. It is the year 2022. It is March the 31st, 2022. And what does that mean? It means that Q1 of 2022, a quarter of the year, is now... In the can. It's over. It happened. It's done. You've done what you've done with it, and you've failed to do what you failed to do with it. You've either made progress or you haven't. Life is not a sliding scale. You're either working for your liberty, freedom, wealth, and independence from the world, or the world is working against you. You do not have a choice in the equation. You do have a choice which side of the equation you come down on. What are we going to talk about today? Well, in the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, Dr. Paul will talk about financial and moral bankruptcy and how they actually go hand in hand and really how one leads to the other quite quickly. Dan McAdams will talk about the fact that America's actions show that we have actually no interest or no desire to create peace in Ukraine. Chris Rossini will talk about what happens if you remove the bread. In the famous bread and circuses, what happens when there's still circuses but no bread? We hear that term thrown around all the time. I think we uh, we generally talk about it with theatrics, like, I don't know, Will Smith's sla- slapping Chris Rock, which if you really want to hear me talk about it, I'll talk about it tomorrow for about a minute and a half. That'll be it during Outback with Jack. But w- w- we can still have the circuses, but what happens when the bread goes away? Nicole Sauce will talk about storing freeze-dried food in mason jars. Ken Berry will talk about berries in the keto diet versus berries in the carnivore diet. How does that work? Uh, Jeff Lawton will talk about dealing with lantana as an invasive species on your pasture or your land and how to get rid of it if you actually want to get rid of it all. I don't think getting rid of it all is a great idea, and I'll tell you why, but I think not having it rampant everywhere is also a good idea, and Jeff will tell you how to make that happen. Tool, Tim Toolman Cook will talk about your cleaning up property, and in this case for a business And you find stuff, and you think, this thing has some value. Do I keep it, or do I take it to the dump? How do I make that decision? I'm going to have a little addition on that one. Doc Bones is going to talk about the ins and outs of a suture kit for preppers. Amy Dingman will talk about how to know if you're doing enough, in air quotes, do enough. Am I doing enough? As a homeschool parent, I have a few little add-ons there. John Pugliano will talk about investing in crypto with your retirement account. And I have a segment for you I did as a live stream already, and I'll drop it into the audio here. Maintaining mental balance in a world full of effing liars and what it's like to be an independent thinker in 2022. With that, before we get started, let me remind you one of the ways you can really help us out. Do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you shop online at tspaz.com, you'll help us out. No matter what you eventually buy, even if it's not something we recommend to review, just start your shopping there. That said, I do have stuff I recommend and review available there. It's all under alphabet, it's all alphabetized. And uh, you can see by different categories and you can see like kitchen tools, which is what we're going to talk about today. You can see prepper gear, you can see fishing gear, outdoor gear, books, herbal medicine. All of it is into categories. So you can go through all my reviews. There's over 500. Reviews of things I've personally bought and used and tried, and I wouldn't recommend it if I wouldn't spend my money on it again if I needed it. Today's item of the day is the Cuisinart FP11 GMFR food processor. This is one of those rare exceptions. I don't own this model. I own one very similar to it that actually costs more money than it but I think is a little bit better of an overall tool. So why am I recommending this one? Because it's on special again under the, the Amazon Renewed program. And I paid $160 for mine. You can get this one for like $67 today. That's why. Because it's stupid cheap. This is a great food processor. 67 bucks normally on sale for about $150 new. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's renewed. That means if somebody's broken a piece of junk, they sent in and got fixed. I, I've talked about this before. This is not how Amazon Renewed works. If you think that Amazon has a group of people with soldering irons, fixing kitchen appliances, you're just out of touch with the business model that is Amazon. Renewed on Amazon generally are items that were returned that can't be sold as new anymore. So Bill ordered something or Susie ordered something, and their spouse was pissed off and said, hey, it's too expensive. Uh, we don't need it right now, and they returned it. Or they they looked at their checkbook at the end of the month and said, I really shouldn't have bought this, and they sent it back. Or when they get it, they didn't read the description right, it's the wrong color, it's the wrong size, It whatever. Or it's a power tool and they don't know how to work the charger, so they think the batteries aren't good, or whatever, and they send it back. So then, then Amazon will take, and all the stuff that's just generally hard to move as a used item, they put it on big pallets and they sell it to third parties, most of whom resell it on Amazon itself as used or sell it on eBay, Etsy, et cetera, right? Well, not really Etsy, but eBay and, and, and other locations, swap meets, whatever. They take the high-dollar, easy-to-flip items. They put it in the renewed category, which means somebody makes sure all the stuff's there, puts it back in the box, et cetera, basically inventory and repackage, and they sell it under the renewed banner. And it can sometimes save you a few bucks, and sometimes it can save you a stinking amount of money. If you don't have a food processor in your kitchen as a prepper, I hardly ever say this, but I think you are wrong. Especially if you are a gardener, you do a lot of processing of foods. If you cook for large groups and things like that, uh, especially like you'll a, a lot of times like if we have people over and we're gonna have like you know a whole, like the family over the extended fam and we're gonna have like twenty people, we don't put out salad or we do it's just like leaves, right? We don't chop up peppers and tomatoes and all that stuff because it's a pain in the butt. You pull the food processor out, and it is seconds, and you have a literal salad bar you can set up. Or if you're making a large amount of coleslaw, you can shred a whole head of cabbage in a couple seconds. And there's a ton of other things you can make your own aiolis and, and, and things like that in a food processor. You can even use it in you know with small amounts to, to fresh ground meat. There's tons you can do with a food processor, but if you don't have one, consider getting one, and at 67 bucks, consider getting this one. It is really badass. Check out the write-up I have on it. And real quick, it's the last day to get the MSB on sale for 35 bucks a year. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And with that, let's go ahead and jump on into it. Up first today, we do have Dr. Ron Paul's team with their thoughts on Liberty. Uh, and specifically, Ron Paul again talking about how moral and financial bankruptcy go together. Dan McAdams, we'll you'll hear second about how the U.S. really doesn't want peace in Ukraine, and Chris Rossini about what happens when the bread in the bread and circuses formula where it runs out.
2: You know, I talk about the financial bankruptcy and the moral bankruptcy, and they're both very, very important. But, you know, when it, when it boils down uh, to which is worse, I think the moral bankruptcy is the worst because that is what the moral bankruptcy encourages people to be divorced, from the principles of the higher law of stealing and taking. And the one thing that people who endorse that system will not accept, that when the government takes money from your neighbor and gives it to you, that deserves Positive support in the elections. I got to vote for that guy. You know, he he stole it from my neighbor and gave it to me, and 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 this is good. But if an individual can't do that, why in the world do we allow the government to do it? And it only makes it worse. It enriches the rich. Uh, it, it makes the rich, uh, the, the wealthy much wealthier. Uh, we've seen that. We have a monetary system that uh, benefits all the special interest groups in Washington. We make it on the short runs that deficits don't matter as long as the money is going to the special interest. It is coming to an end, and it's moving rapidly. We ought to prepare for it. And the most important preparation uh, for, for this is understanding how economics work and the importance of personal liberty and property ownership. It's really not that complicated.
3: This is an unfolding tragedy, uh, this ongoing war. Uh, we do think, I do think, certainly that President Biden could end it in a day or two, if he would call Zelensky and say, look, here's what we need to do. Uh, unfortunately, that is not what the administration wants to do. As we've pointed out, citing Greenwald, Joloria, uh, Nell Ferguson, and many others, uh, this is not what they want. They want a long, protracted war because, as Biden himself said before he was corrected, the goal is regime change for Russia. It's an incredibly foolish, foolhardy, dangerous, potentially world-ending foreign policy goal. But, you know... <laughs> For whom the gods destroy, they first make crazy and insane, and this is what's happening to our U.S. foreign policy establishment. Uh, they're drunk on their own juice. Uh, it's very
0: dangerous. And let's hope that when the smoke clears, some cooler heads prevail. Yes, Dr. Paul, and as Biden pointed out, food shortages, you know, they are probably coming. And he, uh, f- this is completely due to government intervention. This isn't a uh, act of God. It's totally unnecessary. And Biden even states, you know, flat out because of the sanctions, you know. Uh, well, thanks a lot. Uh, it's you're for involving, they're involving themselves in a fight that has nothing to do with us. And Dr. Paul and Daniel have gone over that every single day. This is not in the U.S. interest whatsoever. And they're supposedly punishing Russia, but they're punishing us. You know, first with skyrocketing gas prices and now food shortages. You know, for most people... For most Americans, what the empire does out there uh, stays out there. They have 800 bases. They do God knows what out, uh, out in the world. You know, they, they shelter us from information. Uh, and But they get away with it largely because of bread and circuses, as the Romans used to call them. You know, we have lots of food here and lots of entertainment. So what goes on outside of the United States, you know, we, we're told that it's all for the good. But when you take away the bread now from, uh, from the bread and circuses, not having enough food, that is something different for Americans. We are not used to that. Uh, and people, when they are hungry, they get angry. And when they are hungry and they're angry, they act differently than when their stomachs are full. Is this what Americans want to move into? Is this the type of lifestyle? I surely don't want to live like that. Uh, is this the appropriate foreign policy for our country? You know, it wasn't always this way. America's foreign policy was the exact opposite, in fact, when our country was founded. We minded our own business. What, you know, we took care of our country. We would be wise to revisit that uh, foreign policy that actually served us instead of, you know, uh, these ventures that have nothing to do with us. So as brief of, as each of those are, there's a ton to unpack with them, and I'm not going to unpack it
1: all because I could do the rest of the show and not even bring the other experts on. We're not going to do that. Um, but just a real quick, uh, kind of my own bullet points on it. Uh, Dr. Paul's comment about financial and moral bankruptcy and how one leads to the other, I completely agree with. And I, I will put it as simply as this. What happens is, he, he hit it, right? But I think it can be glossed over if we're not careful. This, Senator, this congressman, whatever, from your district goes to Washington and fights for you and actually gets a thing done you want done, but that thing costs money. Right? It's, not, it's not removing a law, removing a restriction, or defunding a thing. If it's anything other than one of those, it's I want this action taken, and then there's, it's going to have to be enforced. So even if the program itself doesn't cost money, the enforcement of the thing costs money, and that is always paid for with money that was stolen from other people. And as soon as you become okay with that, it doesn't matter which side you pick, you're heading toward financial bankruptcy because there will always be another thing people want. And as soon as they become okay spending money they don't have, spending money we don't have, spending money that your great-grandchildren will have to pay back, there's no path other than bankruptcy you can be on, period. Because the, the desire to have your will imposed on others knows no limits other than money. And if we take away that limit, bankruptcy is, the, is what happens. In other words, if I give you a bunch of credit cards and you're like, I don't really want to use them unless I absolutely have to. Or if I know exactly why I'm using it, like I can leverage this thing this way to make more money. If you become comfortable buying groceries on credit cards, you will, you will go bankrupt. And the government can keep making more credit cards, but eventually that game wears out. And that's what Dr. Paul is talking about. Uh, Dan McAdams is absolutely right. There could be peace in Ukraine Tomorrow if Zelensky didn't keep believing that the West had his back and that somehow they're going to come out of this better. And what's probably going to happen is Ukraine will probably come out of this worse for the war being prolonged, and that's just fine because it's the circuses and the bread and circuses that we'll get to next. And as long as you're looking over there, you everything that's wrong here can be blamed over there. And that'll make sense when I do my segment, so I'll leave it at that. On Chris... Chris's comment about bread and circuses, what happens when the bread wears out, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Because people that are hungry don't just get angry. They get violent. They get very, very violent. Now, the mitigating thing is I don't think people will starve to death in the United States. But I think that we will have a lot of people at the bottom end of the income spectrum forced into the Bill Gates view that everybody should be eating lentils instead of beef. They will not be forced there ideologically. They have done what they can with the ideological argument. And it's not very much. It's not very much. But you can move people with money far more easily than ideology. The the the, the hallmark, and I, I've had this discussion with people that don't understand the word fascism when they use it. The hallmark of fascism as a system of governance is economic controls. That we use the divisions between the classes through cooperation between private industry and the state to the benefit of both private industry and the state at the expense of the very people that we claim to be helping. And that, and when people say, no, no, man, you don't understand. It's about the government controlling people. I just said that. I just said that. I know you didn't understand it because your conditioning is against understanding it because the fascist state has conditioned you to not recognize fascism when you see it. But there is no way in modern society to control humans more than with economics. It is the single most effective mechanism of control, and it requires no guns to do if done eloquently, and they are very good at doing it eloquently. So you might have guns on the periphery. When I say they don't need guns to do this, they don't need to go to your house, point a gun at you, and make you eat lentils. All they need to do is make you look at the cost of ground beef, your checkbook, your credit card balances, your student loan balances, etc., your mortgage payment, your electric payment, and your gas bill. And guess what you're fixing to do? You're fixing to buy lentils, which is the plan. That's what happens when the bread and circuses runs out in the United States. And what it leads to globally is millions, if not hundreds of millions of people who do not have to, starving to death so that the elite can have their way and their war. Next up, let's hear from Nicole Sauce on doing something about food shortages, like freeze-drying our own food, but then how to store it.
4: Hey, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from livingfreeintennessee.com with a question from I don't know who, really. So Jack forwarded me an expert counsel segment about freeze-drying. And I'm looking through my email. It's totally missing, but I remember the question. So whoever sent this, I'm sorry I don't have your name. But here is the question. Hey, Nicole. If I get a freeze dryer and don't want to put my food for long-term storage in those nasty plastic Mylar bags, what can I do? I prefer to store my stuff in glass. Is there a way to do this without having a special second device such as a vacuum sealer that does that? And the answer is, this is what's awesome about having the Harvest Right freeze dryer. Okay. So if you prefer to store your food in jars that are vacuum sealed and you've decided to build a a harvest right freeze dryer into your life, what you also have is a giant dry canner. What's dry canning? Dry canning is when you put dry ingredients into a mason jar, vacuum seal them, thus pulling all the air out of the jar, which lets them store for a really long time without pantry moths getting in, without you know, nasty, high humidity air making your food go bad. And a lot of people use an attachment on the food saver to do this. However, that doesn't pull the best vacuum. It pulls a vacuum, so it's not the end of the world. And if you already have the Harvest right freeze dryer, which you also have is a vacuum chamber and a vacuum pump. Now, if we look at dry canning, the way this works is people take a pressure canner and they use some sort, you know, a set of attachments to make it so that you can hook up your pressure canner, like traditional pr- pressure canner to a vacuum seal pump, put it under a vacuum, and then that pulls all the air out. Well, with the Harvest Right freeze dryer, You don't have to do all that mess. You have one device that can do two things. It can freeze dry your food and it can vacuum seal or dry can anything you want to do. And here's how this works. What you do to get this done is you put your things in the mason jar and you use the ring to just hold the lid on. You don't want it to be too tight or else it'll pull a vacuum and air will not translate from the inside of the jar, to the outside of the jar. And guess what happens? Glass explosion in your freeze dryer. So, you just want that lid on loosely so it's holding the lid down, but not so tightly that air can't get through. Okay? You you take the tray holder out and unplug it from your freeze dryer. Put one of your freeze drying trays in upside down so it's sort of like a little platform to put your jars on. Put things in your jar lightly screw the ring on just so it's holding the lid on top. In fact, if it rattles a little, that's awesome. I'd rather air on the side of that than not have the air translating from inside to outside of the jar when it gets put under a vacuum. So you stack those in, put your door gasket on, close your door, and then on the back of your freeze dryer, that is where your vacuum pump plugs in. So when you're using the freeze dryer, what happens is when the freeze dryer tells it to go on, it sends power to that little jack on the back. So you unplug your vacuum sealer from that, and then you plug it into the wall directly, which will make it turn on. You want to vacuum, have it under vacuum for 30 to 60 seconds only. So you plug it in, look at your watch. If it was me doing it, I would stop it at about 35 seconds, check the seals of the jar, and if I need a 60-second seal, do that if you leave it plugged in too long, again, then you're going to pull too much of a vacuum because that's a fairly powerful pump. And guess what? Well, the negative result is your jars explode. Okay. So the whole goal here, as you can tell, is you don't want your jars to explode. So you put it in 30 to 60 seconds, unplug it, release the pressure on your harvest right, and then open the door, double check the lids are on. And if they aren't, um you need to check for a couple things one was there something between the rubber seal of your mason jar lid and the top of the mason jar two is your vacuum pump really working right those are those are pretty much the only th- two things that can go wrong or three actually if there's like a chip in the rim of the jar or the lid is not it has a manufacturer's error that that could also do it too Check. And once that's done, guys, they are under vacuum seal. I can tell you that the majority of the food that I freeze dry, I store in mason jars in a dark, cool place because I find it easier to seal things up in the mason jar than to like deal with the logistics of getting them in those mylar bags. I only use mylar bags for a couple of things. One, I think I'm going to be storing something for a really long time, which is not my goal with the Harvest Right freeze dryer. Two, if I'm going to go on a trip, I'll either use plastic or mylar if, like, I'm bringing stew or something in the car with me as road trip food because it just, it's easier to store. And of course, I've ended up on the road with some jars of freeze dried stuff, but mostly I just bring it in bags. And, and that's really served me well. The, the, the last thing I want to say about this though is I have found, so I did an experiment last year. Using the freeze dryer to process basil, using air to dry basil, and using the Excalibur to dry basil, so just for dry herb storage. And out of all three methods, the far superior method was the freeze-dried basil. It retained its color and much stronger flavor, although the other two methods are not bad. If I was going to choose between the two and my climate allows for it, I would hang dry it rather than Excalibur dry it, but you know, Excalibur, if you're too humid right? Anyway, I found the freeze-dried product to be superior. I stored it in jars. I vacuum-sealed the jars, and the powder of the freeze-dried basil kind of gets up under the lip no matter what you do. I've tried cleaning it. I've tried vinegar. I've tried everything, and it lasts for about, you know, maybe a week before the lid pops off. So as a backup, when I'm storing that in jars, I put... I leave the ring on, but honestly, what I've done, or transparently, it's a better word, transparently what I've done to, to store the basil is put it in bags because the bags stay sealed and I don't have any problem with, with you know, air getting in there and making my product degrade faster. So those are my thoughts on what you can do without buying a special device. I do have a chamber vac. Sealer, by the way, which is an awesome, awesome thing to add to your life if it's in your budget and it makes sense for you. And because we process animals, it totally makes sense for me. In that, I can just put the mason jars in on their side and that pulls a vacuum seal as well. That's not as strong as the harvest right. So if I'm doing a lot of jars or half gallon jars, I do those in the, I can do those in the harvest right. If I'm doing pint or quart jars, one or two at a time, which is a, a load of freeze dried food is usually not more than four jars and for me, usually less. Um, I'll just do them in the vacuum sealer because it's easier than pulling everything out. Now, I sent Jack a link to a guy named Retired at 40. That's his station on YouTube, and he's probably on Odyssey, too. And it's a video, step-by-step, how to use your Harvest Right as a vacuum sealer for jars. I recommend watching that one time before you try this, just to make sure you don't make any mistakes and you can see somebody else doing it. And if you're getting a Harvest Right freeze dryer, that dude's channel is one of the best resources I've found for a lot of questions from how to filter the oil to how to do something like this, to if I freeze dry beer, will it freeze dry well? He's He's been a great addition to the community. And as much as I'd love to drive you to my stuff to, to get more listeners, I think you should go check out retired at 40. If you're into freeze drying, hope this also, if you are hearing this before April 10th, 2022 at livingfreeintennessee.com, I do have a webinar that's going to happen on the 10th, that's just getting started with freeze-drying, where I'm going to go over everything I've learned in the first year of using a freeze-dryer and how it integrates into my life, some tricks and tips that I've learned along the way, as well as from a really another really good resource in our community, Jake Robinson. That's all over at livingfreeintennessee.com. Make it a great
1: week. So, now that she's explained that, it makes absolute perfect sense to me that, of course, you could use... A freeze dryer is a vacuum sealer for dry canning. Uh, duh, because it pulls vacuum. So what she described is it's exactly how dry canners work that you build out of a pressure canner. You pull the vacuum, then when you release the pressure, the, 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 the top lid seals down and holds the vacuum because there's no way the air can get in. Makes perfect sense. I do want to say something about the original question, though. I don't want to use mylar, etc., you're afraid of a boogeyman that doesn't exist. You're afraid of the, 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 scary, the scary man under your bed that doesn't exist. Now, if you want to use mason jars for this, God bless you, go forth and mason jar your ass off. However, mason jars have a disadvantage compared to mylar, etc. packaging in that they're heavier, they can break, they're more bulky per amount of items stored, they're more difficult to transport. So if it's what you want to do, God forbid Jack Spearco stand in the way of anybody doing what they want to do. But if you're doing it because you believe there is some inherent health risk to putting a freeze-dried raspberry in a Mylar bag, you are biochemically incorrect. You're you're free to do that, but there is literally no way a freeze-dried raspberry or piece of steak or whatever in a Mylar bag is going to harm you. It's not going to harm you. It's not going to harm you. It is not going to harm you. There's no way for it to take any sort of thing that is going to kill you and put it inside the freeze-dried food. I don't care what you read on the internet, but you do what you want. All right, moving on. We're talking about raspberries, or what about berries in general? How does that fit into the keto diet? And with Ken Berry talking so much about keto, ketovore, carnivore, like where do the berries go away? Can you be a carnivore and eat berries? Here's what Ken will tell you about that.
3: Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Mike T. Mike says, what about berries on the carnivore diet? I could swear I've heard you mention eating berries on the carnivore diet. Am I correct? Uh, Good question, Mike T. So berries are a great addition to a low-carbohydrate diet, to a ketogenic diet, and even to a ketovore diet. But a carnivore diet, by definition, is eating only things that come from animals. So that would be meat and eggs. Uh, The meat can be from anything that crawls, swims, slithers, jumps, hops, uh, or ambulates across the earth or in the water or the egg of any of those things. Uh, But not berries. If you're going to eat a carnivore diet, then do that. If not, then... Eat a ketovore diet, which would be carnivore plus a few berries. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Berry. Talk to you guys next time.
1: So I think this is one of those words, but what does the word mean when we use it? So if we use the word carnivore as it is meant to describe the diet that uh, is 100% ketogenic and requires no counting of anything because... There are no carbohydrates to count. Um, then, yeah, if you ate anything other than something that came so, that came from something that lives with a face or, or similar, then, yeah, it would technically not be carnivore. However, I want to say something about that just from a practical standpoint. I defy you to show me a pure carnivore in nature. A pure carnivore in nature, except maybe some fish species. And that's a maybe. And, and what I mean by that is if you think of, like, if I say, give me an example of a carnivorous animal, a carnivorous mammal, a carnivorous mammal. You might say something like a lion, and I will show you one eating grass. I will show you one eating grass occasionally. Now they're not going to get the bal- they're not going to get their dietary staple from it. You give say say show me a top carnivore in North America. Most people would probably say, a uh, grizzly bear," and a grizzly bear is the top predator. It is not the top carnivore. 'Cause it's not a carnivore. Grizzly bears eat wild oats, grizzly bears eat berries. Right? And I'm not saying you're a grizzly bear, and I'm not saying you should eat lots of berries. I'm just saying that like puritanism in anything tends to lead awry. Now, how do berries fit into ketogenics? Well, low carb is low carb, high fat, moderate protein is the definition of a ketogenic diet. That is pretty hard and fast. That's what will lead to the body existing in a state mostly most of the time as ketosis, which is going to lead to hormonal balance and healthy life and healthy weight. Okay, So that's what ketogenics is. People think of berries as being a typical fruit and that fruit having a lot of sugar in it. With very few exceptions, berries do not have a lot of sugar per the volume generally consumed. If you look at the carbohydrates in strawberries or raspberries or blackberries or something like that, Blueberry, you will find that it has far less sugar than you would think. If they were wines, we would refer to them as off-dry. What's an off-dry wine? An off-dry wine is where you taste it. You say that's quite a bit of residual sweetness to it, but it is the fruit character and body of the wine giving you a sense of sweetness that actually exceeds the sugar volume. Because it's actually a well-attenuated wine that's more toward the dry side. And most fruits, or most berries in the realm of fruit would be an off-dry fruit. So if we eat an apple or an orange, it is tastes sweet and it's very high in fructose. But if we eat an equal amount of berries, that doesn't mean you can eat 400 pounds of berries. You're going to crap your brains out if you do anyway. But, it, but if you do eat, like a, let's say, five ounces of apple, or five ounces of strawberry. Go look it up for yourself. The mouth will tell you you've had about the same amount of sugar. The taste buds will tell you this. But the reality on the ground of the actual amount of sugar consumed is far lower for the berries than it is for the true fruit. Strawberries, by the way, are not even a true fruit. Little factoid, little jack factoid. Strawberries are actually the stem of the plant, that swells up and becomes sweet so that animals will consume it and poop out the actual fruit, which are the little tiny seeds adhered to the fat stem we call a strawberry. Anyway, useless information that's cool to know. Moving on to sticking in the world of plants, what about lantana? And if it's overgrowing in your area, how do you control it? Jeff Lawton on that.
5: Hi, right, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And... um I have a question here about Lantana, um, which is number five on the noxious weed list in the world, but it's great at growing forest. Um, actually, trees grow through it very well. Uh, someone wants to clear it. They've got three acres in their bushland here in Australia, um, and uh, we get asked a lot about Lantana. You can work with it quite well, but uh, if you want to clear it. They are suggesting goats, um, and... Um, goats actually don't get poisoned by the pink yellow flower lantana they get swollen fleece from the red lantana which is not the one it probably is uh, the red red flowering lantana is not so common not so rampant it's the pink yellow flowering one that's usually the one that takes over a bit um, goats will eat it uh, with a few other things around they usually eat the privet as well and other non-native plants before they eat any natives but it only eat leaves they won't eat the branches so it'll just come back uh, but lantana is very easy to clear uh, what we do is we just cut it uh, with machetes or brush hooks um, we don't bother pulling it out uh, because there's so much uh, mulch material going down to the ground it's hard to see where it's connected to the ground initially um, we leave it for uh, a month or two it re-sprouts where it's connected to the ground it doesn't grow from cuttings very easily at all it just, you see these little green areas where it's uh, connected to the ground, it's very shallow rooted. Uh, we just put um, a mattock type pick through the root and lever it out. It comes out very easily. That way you don't lose any soil. Um, you get to see where all your bush seedlings are and your native um, trees are coming up. And if there are a few gaps in there, uh, the last thing you want is grass. Grass is worse than lantana for growing uh, native bushland. Um, plant a few seedling waddles in there if you've got a bit of open space, acacias, nitrogen fixing natives. Uh, they'll take up all the space where your main timber trees take over, and it's that simple. Cut it, pull it out a little bit later, plant it to the local uh, pioneers, and uh, problem's all solved. There you go.
1: This is one of those things that almost always is the same answer, right? If you have a thing and you want the thing to go away, and pulling it out, if possible, will work. But in most instances actually makes the problem worse and cutting it back repeatedly will eventually wear out the plant's ability to reproduce itself it always comes down to in permaculture if we have a thing we don't want in our system we need to disadvantage it in some way compared to that which we do wish which we give it an advantage and we let nature take its course from there
6: next up we have a question on suture kits for preppers Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded Amazon Top 20, fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Roman, who asks, Question to Dr. Bones, is there a pre-built surgical suturing kit you can recommend? I'm currently in the process of building my home slash grab-and-go medical bag, Looking for a surgical kit to fulfill basic trauma care needs when care is not available, such as serious breaks in skin. I have previously done basic medical training with suturing, thus relatively competent in basic skin damage first aid. Looking for a kit that will contain all basic equipment, such as needles, thread, pads, forceps, etc. If there is no kit on the market, I will be buying them individually. However, it would be nice to buy a whole set pre-built by an expert. Alternatively, are there any other suturing options you would recommend? all assuming no medical help is available in the long term. Roman. Well, Roman, I'm so glad you asked that question because we at Doom and Bloom Medical have some of the best medical kits on the planet, and that has been verified by survival experts and published in New York Magazine of all places. Our suture kit comes with four sterile instruments, a needle holder, a Curve Kelly clamp, an Adson's forceps, and an iris scissors. It comes with a sterile pack, sterile drapes, 4x4s, iodine wipes, bacitracin, antibiotic ointment. You get four non-sterile gloves for prepping the wound and a pair of sterile gloves for the actual procedure, as well as two silk sutures that are 18 inches long each. The kit is also very affordable, but you know what? If you find a suture kit that tops that, you should buy it. By the way, we have a special on a suture kit and staple kit package that comes with a USB flash drive of my popular suturing and stapling class, something you might find educational. Our surgical pack contains a bunch of instruments, an entire collection of clamps, scissors, scalpels, probes, and what you won't find in most other surgical kits, a set of two retractors for better visualization of the operative field. Okay, that's it for the shameless plug. Maybe I should spend a moment talking about when a wound should be sutured and when it shouldn't. Skin is your armor, and a breach in it means trouble, serious trouble. Common sense dictates that we would want to close a skin breach to speed healing and lock out infection. There's much controversy, however, as to whether or not to close a wound. When and why would you choose to close one, and what method should you use? After rendering first aid, which includes removal of any foreign objects, control of bleeding, cleaning, and irrigation, you have to make a decision. A laceration may be closed by tapes, medical superglues, staples, or sutures. What are you trying to accomplish by closing a wound? Your goals are simple. You want to repair the defect in the body's armor, eliminate dead space, which could harbor dangerous pathogens, and promote healing. A well-approximated wound also, by the way, in the end, has less scarring. It sounds as if all wounds should be closed. Unfortunately, closing a wound that should be left open can do a lot more harm than good and could possibly put your patient's life at risk. Take the case of a young woman who was injured some years ago in a zipline accident. The fall left her with a large laceration to her thigh. She was taken to the local emergency room where they put more than 20 staples to close the wound. Unfortunately, the closure locked in dangerous bacteria and caused a serious infection which spread throughout her body. She eventually required multiple amputations. The lesson to be learned here from this tragic story is this. The decision to close a wound should not be automatic. An important consideration when making this decision is whether you're dealing with a clean or dirty wound. It stands to reason that most wounds the medic will encounter off-grid will be contaminated. If you try to close that wound, bacteria and dirt may remain inside the patient. If so, infection will soon become apparent with signs of spreading redness, swelling, and warmth. An accumulation of pus, also called an abscess, may form under the skin. Such an infection could even spread to the bloodstream, a condition known as Septicemia. This is a systemic infection that involves the whole body and becomes life-threatening. Leaving the wound open is less problematic in that it allows the medic to clean the inside frequently and observe the actual healing process. It also allows inflammatory fluid to drain out of the body. The scar isn't as cosmetically pleasing, but it's the safest option in infected cases. Certain wounds should not be closed. They include wounds that are at high risk for infection. Many wounds, as I mentioned, incurred outdoors are dirty, Clearly contaminated or infected wounds, for example, human, animal bites, things like that. Injuries caused by a dirty, sharp object, or or maybe a red, swollen wound that's already draining pus. Open wounds that are more than six to eight hours old or so are risky. Even the air has bacteria, and there's a good chance that they have colonized the injury already. Small, deep puncture wounds. These are difficult to adequately flush out with irrigation. Wounds with significant tissue loss, also called avulsions, especially if the cut edges are so far apart that undue pressure is required to close them. Now, in some situations, a wound left open can be treated with what's called a delayed or secondary closure. After observation of, let's say, 48 hours or so, some actually will close a wound if there is no sign of infection. Here are some factors that would suggest that closure is appropriate. The wound is caused by clean, sharp objects. The laceration is long or deep, If you can see yellow subcutaneous fat in the wound, it should be sutured. The exception, by the way, would be a puncture wound from an animal bite. These bites are loaded with bacteria and should be kept open in austere settings, although they may be closed in modern emergency room settings. The wound is located over a joint. A moving part, such as a knee, will constantly stress a wound and prevent it from closing in by itself and if the wound gapes open. There's a lot more to it, but it's important to realize that it's easy to throw a stitch and close a wound. The key is to gain the judgment of when it should be done. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Hector Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening.
1: So two quick ads before we go on to John Pugliano here. Um, First, I want you to think about the story Doc told here of a girl that went to uh, an ER and they closed the wound and they shouldn't have. Those were trained medical professionals that made the wrong call. That means you really need to think before you do this because if a, somebody that's even like a first year resident, they've been through four years of uh, pre-med, four years of med school, they've done their internship, now they're a resident physician at a hospital can make the wrong call. How likely is it that you might make the wrong call? You know, that, that's something we, we really, I think, need to think about. And then what he said in the end about animal bites, I want you to understand how true this is, and I want you to know, of all the things in the in the planet that can bite you, the top three most in, most infectious bites that you can receive. Number three, the leopard. The leopard, the bite of the leopard, which you're not going to get bit by a leopard in the United States unless one escapes from a zoo, right? You got other problems, um, but the leopard because it eats carrion. Contains a tremendous amount of bacteria in its mouth and its gums, and leopard bites incredibly infectious. Number two, the monkey. Monkey bites in general, and this is all monkeys apes, chimps, everything in between incredibly infectious. And the most infectious bite on planet Earth comes from human beings. Now, I'm sure there's variances, like this guy just brushed his teeth, and this thing over here got bit by a possum that just ate garbage. I'm sure there's variances. But these are on aggregate averages. Most infectious bite on the planet? You and me. And that is something that you may actually encounter, because people bite when they get in fights. And I know that sounds crazy, except well, Mike Tyson. Anyway, let's go on and uh, hear about crypto in our retirement accounts.
7: Hello, this is John Pugliano, and I'm answering my part of a question from Zeb about using retirement accounts like IRAs and Roths and 401ks to invest in crypto. Well, hey, Zeb, I think one of the best things in the last 50 years or more that our government has done for us is to allow us to invest in tax-advantaged accounts. And a tax-advantaged account is exactly what you're asking about. It could be a 401k could be an IRA, a Roth, it could be 403B plan, some kind of pension plan that your firm offers. It doesn't really matter what it's called, but these are all categorized as tax advantaged accounts because they generally either allow you to invest pre-tax dollars, which allow the gains to increase tax deferred or if it's something sheltered as a Roth, and that could be a Roth IRA or could be a individual Roth account, those are post-tax dollars, but they grow tax-free. And while I love tax-deferred, tax-free is even better. So absolutely, anytime you have an opportunity to invest in anything under the guise and the shelter and protection of a tax-advantaged account, like a retirement account, then I think you should look into taking advantage of it. The other thing that you should be aware of when it comes to retirement accounts is that you're not limited to one. And that means you can have multiple 401ks or multiple Roths or multiple SEPs or whatever you want to be covered by. You have to remember that the regulations limit how much money you can contribute in aggregate in one year, but they don't limit how many individual retirement accounts you can have. And you can have them all at the same time and you can have them with different custodians or the same custodian for that matter. But in terms of your question, let's imagine that you had three primary areas where you wanted to invest your retirement funds. So you wanted to invest in crypto, real estate, and the stock market. Well, it would probably be pretty difficult to find one custodian that specifically specialized in providing you the type of trading platform that would fit all those categories. And maybe, you know, as Wall Street continues to adapt and move towards crypto, that will move more to the traditional you know, Schwab's and E-Trades of the world. But for right now, I think you can definitely find custodians that have trading platforms that are better with crypto and then others that are better with the stock market, for example. So, you know, you talk about rolling over your existing 401k. Well, you don't have to move that all at once. And in my example, these three areas, if you wanted to invest in real estate, crypto, and the stock market, you could pick... Three specific vendors that provide the custodial service for those specific areas and then just roll over the amount in the percentage that you want to invest in that category. So you could have, you know, 10% of your retirement in crypto with one custodian under one IRA and another IRA could be at a traditional discount stockbroker for, for 60% of your portfolio. And then you could have that separate custodian to handle your 30% of your IRA retirement money that you want to be in real estate. So keep that in mind. You're not limited to one custodian and one type of an account. The only one caveat I would say is to just be very careful with who you're doing business. You should do your homework and make sure that the custodian is reliable and not some scamster. What I find to be more common is that the custodians themselves are on the up and up. However, these companies still do play shell games where they make it a lot easier for you to get your money into the custodian than to get it back out. I just bring this up because I've run into a number of these self-directed custodial retirement accounts where they put up a lot of roadblocks and hurdles for making these transfers and, you know, what should be something very easy. They make very complicated and you are able to get the money, but instead of it taking a day or two, it ends up taking weeks or, in some case, dragging on to multiple months. So watch out for the scamsters. Hey, thanks for the question. This is John Pagliano with Investable Wealth and the well Studying Podcast.
1: Well, I, I agree with everything John said. I just want to add one thing that I think is important to know. Not only can you have more than one IRA – you can, you do not have to roll an entire IRA into another IRA. I think this is just a little important addition here. So let's say that I have an IRA with a couple hundred thousand dollars in it and I, I generally like the allocation in it, but this custodian, like let's say it's with E-Trade, right? They won't let me buy Bitcoin and I want to buy, I want to buy $50,000 worth of Bitcoin so that I can now hold $50,000 worth of Bitcoin in my IRA. What I can do is inside that IRA execute trade of the securities that are being held in there. ETFs, stocks, whatever they are to the tune of $50,000. Maybe I take, I have four securities and, or five securities to make it round and I take $10,000 out of each security or a proportional amount. So basically I take a percentage equal and I get my $50,000 in cash. I can now roll that cash To an IR, a second IRA, and I can leave behind if there was 200,000 in there, I can leave 150 behind. I don't have to take it all to do a roll. And that is really important. And the reason is that so many people that are, that talk about things like, I want to buy gold and silver, or I want to buy real property, or I want to hold crypto in their IRAs. And and in general, I would say something like, why, I, I am not a fan of holding precious metals in IRAs in the form of physical metal. Physical metal you put in a safe in, in the concrete in a safe in your, your house or something like that because it's anonymous and keep it anonymous. But what you trade into metals with in an IRA is like SLV if you want to hold silver. It's an ETF that tracks the price of silver because it's easy to trade and you can make money on the ups and downs and it gives you exposure to silver. That's what makes sense. And the reason you would do that if you wanted to invest in silver, for many Americans, especially people in their late 30s, mid-40s, most of their liquid wealth, in other words, something to convert to cash and buy something else with easily, is in 401ks and IRAs. So it's not that they really necessarily need the asset in a retirement account. It's that the money to get at the asset is in the retirement account. So, by rolling a portion, you then free the capital for the investment. That's more important than the vehicle that it's in. And, you know, there's, there's, it's really nice to be able to say, hey, Bitcoin just went up to like, I don't know. Let's say it skyrockets up to $180,000. Don't think it's not going to happen because eventually it will. But it's some irrational drive up. Being able to sell half your Bitcoin at that point because you know it's coming down and buy it back and pay no taxes, it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice. I don't get into trading a lot, but there's times where it makes sense. All right, with that, let's drop into my live feed today uh, that I did on maintaining mental focus and balance and in your beliefs and what you act on in a world full of lies and liars. And we are live. Hey, folks. Uh, today I'm, I'm just live streaming just my segment for the Expert Council show, so if you're on the stream We'll go 10 to 15 minutes tops today. I probably will not be taking questions and things like that from the audience. Uh, I might highlight a comment or two, like Tom's right here, which is excellent. I work with people that constantly say, did you see that thing on the news? And I'm constantly like, dude, once again, I don't have a TV, and I avoid the news. Go away. And that is one way to come at some of this stuff, and I think it's a a good idea. I, uh, I did a show years ago, and I've run it a couple times in the Rewinds called Turn Off the F in News, and I, I think there's a, a big case for that. But there is a point where we're trying to figure out what's going on in the world. And today, I uh, I want to talk to you guys about maintaining a balance in that world. And uh, it's it's a difficult thing to do and a difficult thing to explain. And, and the two sides I'm giving is pulling at us right now are mainstream media and like whack-a-doodle conspiracy theorists. And I think it's important before we proceed with this conversation, we identify what both of those things mean, because a lot of people don't think they mean what they mean. So when I say mainstream media, I'm talking about anything that masquerades as news or media, if it's on TV or on the internet. I don't care what it is. As long as it's inside what you would call the main media narrative, so even if it has picked a flavor of the main media narrative. So Fox News and CNN both go on the MSN side to be clear. And any website, even if it doesn't have an online news channel associated, or I mean an offline news channel associated with it like a, a newspaper or a TV show, if it's in that world, it goes in the MSN side. Now, let's talk about what what is wackadoodle conspiracy theory. And what I have to come out with this, because I know some people like, Jack, the conspiracy theory have been proven 100% right in the last two years. Where have you been? Um, I don't mean the word that way. And it's important that when we have conversations, we use words and we mean the same thing. So I said wackadoodle or nut job or tin hat nutter or something like that. So how do we define that? So I think we have to start from a standpoint of conspiracy theorist as a phrase is now very similar in the modern vernacular to the word racist. I don't like what you said, so you are a racist, white supremacist, conspiracy theorist, whatever. And and so I don't mean it that way. So there's a lot of people now that are proudly saying, I'm a conspiracy theorist, and they mean according to the media. This is not what I mean when I talk about being pulled in the other direction, by the wackadoodle nut job, tin foil hat wearing conspiracy theorists, this is kind of how I mean it. It's, it may be a little difficult to explain, but best way I can explain it is this: when I meet somebody and it's clear that I'm dealing with somebody that wants to go down the conspiracy corridor, I oh denier. Somebody brings up denier. That's a very good word too to point out. It's another one of those. It's just a label we throw at people, and I don't mean it that way. So, is there a such thing as a Holocaust denier? Yes. When we take that word and we apply it to someone in another realm to associate with them with the first realm, that's where we're being disingenuous. So when somebody uses conspiracy theorists to shut anybody up that disagrees with anything on the MSN, that's not what I'm talking about, right? All right, so in this world, what happens is you have to start picturing yourself. Oh, sorry, that distracted me from Finbear there. Um, When I meet somebody and it's clear they want to go down into the rabbit hole with any conspiracy theory, even one I agree with, I steer the conversation immediately so I know what I'm dealing with. Am I dealing with a rational person who has honest questions that differs from the mainstream narrative, because we're kindred if, if I am? Or am I dealing with somebody that believes every conspiracy theory under the sun? And so, I'll say, so, are you into, like, conspiracy theories and all? And then if they, if they push back with, you know, oh, you just think it's, no, no, calm down. No, I'm just saying, like, are you familiar with a lot of these different things called conspiracy theories? Do you consider, like, a, a conspiracy theory buff? So, so I know they know more than one thing, because this might not be a fair question if you only know this one thing. So, assuming they do, they know all the conspiracies from JFK to 9-11 to, We didn't land on the moon To the earth is flat and everything else in between. I'll say, give me two conspiracy theories that you don't believe or at least don't believe fully on the conspiratorial side. And if they can't name a couple, then I, I, I feel like I'm dealing with somebody that believes every conspiracy theory and the intellectual conversation is going to be very low and it's probably not worth having. And so that's the group I'm talking about on the other side, the people that want to pull everything to the absolute extreme version of conspiracy, and that doesn't mean they're wrong about everything. Just like the MSN is not wrong about everything. So how do you view yourself in this scenario where we have polarized in everything? We've polarized in socialist versus capitalism, we've we've polarized in race, we've polarized in wealth, we've polarized in everything, and it's just another polarization. I think you have to view yourself, because now we're not talking about just an, an ardent religious like belief in a thing we're actually talking about discussing actual events that you may actually need to know what's really going on about you might not be able to stop the storm but if it's coming you need to know what kind of storm it is what threats it's posing and so what can you do about it so i see this like you're standing on an old school uh playground teeter totter you know a balance and you're you're playing the game. I used to do this I as a kid anyway. They probably don't have teeter-totters anymore because it's too dangerous. But you stand right at the middle, and you spread your feet on both sides of the fulcrum. And you balance. And if you lean this way, it starts to go that way. And you lean this way, it starts to go that way. And hopefully nobody runs up and slams it and knocks you off and laughs at you while you hurt and bleed because you hit a rock. And you, that's you. You're sitting there. And then on both sides, you have mainstream media, and then you have what I'm calling the tin hat nutter community today with all of these things. And I don't want to even give any specific examples, but it could be anything from, did we land on the moon? Is the earth flat? To what's really going on in Ukraine? Or what you know, what treatments actually work for uh, our, our latest virus? Or whatever. I, and don't get mired in that. I'm just trying to say it's that broad that we're talking about here. And if you were on that balance beam in this metaphor, think of it as you have people pulling you in both directions. And so you have the MSM, mainstream media types, the the, the the I believe everything I'm told types, the whatever the TV says, I equate with science types. So it's not just the media, it's everybody that falls in with them, and they're trying to pull you over there. And then you've got the people who are tin hat nutters, And they run websites and YouTube channels or they just believe and you're talking to them. And they're trying to pull you over there. And they're pulling you back and forth, back and forth. What you have are opposing forces. And where the metaphor breaks down, if that was really what was going on, all you would have to do is let them pull equally and you'd maintain your balance. Because you're in a three-dimensional space of, of, of matter and weight and density. So as long as they were pulling about it just as equally hard, it'd be actually really easy for you to maintain balance. But we're not talking about the three-dimensional physical world in this tug-of-war. We move into the mental world. And you can now be pulled forward, backward, up, down, left, right, center, opposing, all at the same time. Now the three dimensions are truly three dimensions. They're not just left and right on this teeter-totter. And we can move into dimensions that we can't even express in three-dimensional space because we're in a mental sphere, where two things that look similar are actually different, and we're being mentally pulled at and prodded at. And whether we want to accept this or not, we all have absolute 100% in us, genetically evolved desire to fit into groups, to be part of a group. To, this is why people look for a label for themselves. I'm not this, I'm not that, so what am I? A, a, a certain amount of conformity That we seek. I don't care how nonconformist you are, you have this genetically wired into you. And it's because it's a survival trait. Because when we were very ancient as a species, or very young as a species, I should say, and we didn't have all our technology and knowledge and books and everything handing it down, and a group of hunter gatherers came along and they saw something that looked a little bit different, there was it like, I want to investigate it, and it also could be dangerous. And the more intelligent, more perceptive of the group would generally make a decision, this thing is interesting enough that we can risk it and here's how, or this thing is really dangerous because it's a saber-toothed cat and I saw one of those before and it's going to chop our heads off. So they would pull the group away. Now, if there was a special person in the group who thought that, hey, I don't think that's really dangerous, they were either a genius that was going to discover a new thing or more likely... They were going to go and think, I can scare away the saber-toothed cat with a stick and take its kill. And then everybody heard loud chomping and a disgusting purring as their comrade got eaten. So we have this in us, this desire to conform to a group. And this is what causes the tension in the pool. And then the next thing you need to think about is every single thing that we do to maintain balance requires opposing forces. Walking is the most basic balance activity that we we do on a daily basis, and it requires two forces, and they're both required. There is the resistant force of our muscular and skeletal systems, and our neural systems, and the mind-body connection that says, this is how one walks and maintains balance. But the opposing force is gravity. And if we don't have gravity, we can't walk. We're like an astronaut in space. We can move in a totally different way that we can use inertial movement and we actually have to be trained on how to do that effectively, but we cannot walk unless we have some force pulling us down. We could use magnetism, magnetic boots or something like that, I guess, but we have to have an opposing force. Well, in this model where we're doing this mentally, we have to be our own opposing force. Mentally. We have to resist the desire to go in either direction. And we have to be very careful that we don't do it driven by our confirmation and perception bias. So since I don't want this thing to be true, I assume that it's not true, and then I become more subject to the other side, whichever side it takes me down. And this is why people immediately attack you when you take a position that's not on either extreme. Because you've done the one thing they can't tolerate. You've thought independently for yourself. And instead of saying, independent thinker, we can't trust him. He's a witch, right? right? Like witch hunt. They actually throw you to the other side. So if we take an issue, for instance, the most hot button issue going on right now, the war in Ukraine. And, 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 a, and a rational, sane, thinking person comes out and says, look... This is not a cut-and-dry, good-guy, bad-guy issue. Here's all the corruption and all the problems in Ukraine, and here's all the ways that the West has provoked Russia. I'm still opposed to this war. I don't, I'm not saying Putin's a good guy. I'm saying this whole idea that we are lily white in this is nonsensical, and when two, two nations go to war or two powers go to war, there's evil on both sides. Well, what do they say? Putin apologist! He's a Russian stooge! He's on the payroll! Like, some dude like me is on the freaking payroll of Russia. Like, that's an ass... That's a natural reaction. On the other side of it, the people that actually say, this is a just war, right, if you could find those people, and they exist, they will push me to the exact opposite side, and say, I'm, I'm an apologist for the West because I say anything negative about the other side. And then you can just keep throwing all issues into this. And you'll see the pattern repeats over and over and over again. So where, why is this important? And, and how do we use it? It's important because at times we're going to make decisions for our lives based on our understanding of facts. And one of the most important decisions we can make, one of the most productive decisions we can make, is this thing upsets me in some way, shape, or form. I don't like to see people dying. I don't like to see people abused or whatever. But then I can filter it to, here's the places I can make a difference in my life, within my circle of control, and within the lives of others in my circle of influence. And here's all the other space where I just have to do what Tom said at the beginning. I don't care. It's not my problem. There's nothing I can do about it. What some guy in Sheboygan, Illinois, thinks about Vladimir Putin doesn't really affect my life. I'm not going to pretend that it does, right? Or what they think about whether or not a particular drug cures a particular disease or not is not going to. I'm not going to change their mind, and I'm not going to try. All I'm going to do is speak the facts that I've discovered and give the sources of those facts let people make individual decisions, and I'm doing more than most of you should do because I am a media personality myself. I am a true, independent media personality, educator, and journalist. I wear all three hats. And some days I come on here, I am purely in an educational mode. Some days I come on here and I'm purely in a personality mode. And some days I come on and I'm purely in a journalistic mode. And most of the time I'm blending those three, and I try to be clear where I'm at when I'm at it. So if you are not doing this, then all you need to do is make the decision for yourself and your life and then go on with it. And the number one way they keep that teeter-totter going and try to pull people out of the center where they hate them. And this is not a political center. This is a logical, factual center. This is where I will take all the information and I will analyze it, and I will make my own decision based on the information and the information alone that's available at the time, and I will come up with, this thing is true, this thing is false, or this thing is partially true or partially false. And I will either come up with enough information that this is a definitive choice, or I will come up with, for now my belief leans toward X until such time that greater information is available. This is the single most dangerous thing in the world for states this is this is a behavior that they cannot tolerate it is inherently dangerous because if you don't pick one of those sides and gravitate towards it you just might make independent proactive decisions and then the real danger is you might set an example of what that looks like and other people might start getting off the extremes and coming to that center and getting proactive. And then what we're going to say is, since I don't have a side in the fight, and all I want is for things to be better for myself and the others around me, I'm going to work toward that end. And now what need do you have of the state? And the answer is very little. Very little. The the the, the entire the entire way by which The state maintains its legitimacy and its effectiveness is through force. The state is force. And anybody that says it's not doesn't know what the state is and doesn't know what force is. And they're not worth talking to. The state is force. Without force, you have no state. You have a voluntary system of participation. Okay? You have, without universal force, by the way. So the thing about a voluntary system of participation, there may be force mechanisms within that, posi- that, that entity, but you choose to be part of it or you choose to leave it or you choose to never be part of it. Where the state's force exists upon you whether you agree to it or not for all things the state decides. This is an unnatural state for human beings to exist in. We're not supposed to live like that. The natural state of the human being is feral. We're neither wild nor domesticated. Right? We kind of exist in that feral intermediary where we're wild, but we're organizing wild. We, we, we work collectively and independently at the same time, unlike something like a a troop of monkeys who kind of like, if you fit in, you fit in. If you don't, you get killed or knocked out and you have to go find a place to fit in. Or ants where if you're born in the hive, you're part of the hive. We totally, completely control our own destiny and how we associate with others and who we work together with, but yet we still have a wild nature about us. We're still part of nature, like, the, like I talked about on Tuesday with the permaculture episode I did this week. We still have that within us. And if we act on that, we, we separate ourselves from not only fear... But a belief that someone else can fix the thing that causes the fear. And once we do that, they lose control. Even if you have a minarchist society, the control is destroyed. So like you can have a minarchist government that worries about roads and bridges and national defense and, and, and basic free market commerce, right? And enforcement of contracts, voluntary contracts. It's going to grow into a monstrosity, because that's what we started out with, and the the more minimal the government, the more monstrous it will become over time, but if you started out there for a while, things would be really good, unless you want to control other people. Then it becomes very, very difficult to control people, because if you give a person a problem, they're going to either solve it, work around it, or seek help in solving it, or compensate someone to solve it for them. This is the natural response of the human being when they when they encounter a problem. Which is why everything that's done is based on disempowerment. And this is why you take the people in power, the MSM, etc., they actually empower the wackadoodle conspiracy people. They want them. That way anybody that sits in the center, that tries to maintain balance when they're being pulled in de- both directions, can just be grouped in with whatever negative association has been created with the term racist, white supremacist conspiracy theorist privileged, take your pick that's all they've done they've made this giant list of labels and it's it's, it's like if you have a telemarketing job and they say any objection that the person you call has is in the manual and well I don't need this well I'm sure you think that way but and you just read what's on page 7 right and that's what the media does today that's what the, and that's what the alternative has has begun to do as well they just create their own list of labels this person said a thing i don't like uh conspiracy theorist Patak. it's been debunked Patak. right there's there's no actual facts brought to bear on the situation and the worst thing you can do when you're attacked from the other side if you want to, if you if you don't want to get attacked more is provide fact when you provide fact, then they really lose their freaking mind. People who want the truth, even when it's inconvenient, are never upset by the truth. When people want a thing to be a thing, and, and you give them a fact counter to it, that is when they want to silence you. That is when they become angry. So I encourage you, and look at the thumbnail I chose for this video. Right, It's two monkeys fighting. It's the MSN and the wackadoo conspiracy theorist. It's not just those two groups in almost everything where there are two opposing forces in the world today competing for your attention and your action and your compliance or non-compliance. The truth probably lies somewhere between the extremes. Notice I didn't say the middle. The, the, The truth lies in the middle in of itself as a fallacy is generally the case in these situations, that one side is more right than the others, the other. And that side will switch, depending on what the propensity of each side is at the moment. But it's up to you to make these decisions for yourself, and to understand that fighting the two sides leaves you susceptible to the other. If I turn and fight the left, the guys on the right grab me by the shoulders and pull me in. While the people on the left are shoving me to the right. And I'm not talking about political right and left. I'm just giving you arbitrary directions here. Same thing. I turn around and I oppose the right side of this balance beam. Then everybody on the right starts just shoving me. It's much easier to deal with me if I'm just some dumb, stupid fucking sheep that believes everything CNN says, right? Or if I'm some right-wing conspiracy theorist, right? Both of those are easier to deal with for either side, than a free-thinking individual analyzing the information that's available at the time with independent thought, reason, and logic. That's terrifying. And I encourage you to be terrifying to the establishment. With that, we'll wrap up this segment, and I will be back tomorrow with an episode of Outback with Jack. You pull yourself
0: up. They keep bringing you down.